to the Liberty Moms podcast. Chris Kimball hosting today. Liberty Moms are the real secretaries of defense when it comes to their communities, their families, and their children. And I'm excited to have as my guest today a fellow Liberty Mom, Pamela Smith. She's actually been um, part of our co-host lineup a year or so ago, but she's had some family things come up with um, second generation or the older generation that she's been taking care of. And so sometimes you have to juggle and change things. And that's what, that's what we do. We've got our children that we bring up, but we also have our family and our moms and dads that we have to take care of. And so that's what Pamela has been doing. Yes. Yes. And I've asked her to join me today because we're going to talk about traditions and traditions in right now that are, we're going to get into specifically traditions that are tied to Christmas and the birth of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to take this time and do it earlier in the month because this will be aired in the next um, following week. And I want people to realize that sometimes the things that we've been taught since we were children, and I'm not saying they're bad. I mean, I love the nativity story. And this morning I happened to go to watch the fifth, five-year-olds at the uh, the school that my uh, my grandkids go to, a private school, and the little kindergarten and pre-K class does an actual nativity story. So they, they memorize scripture. So these are five-year-old kids that have memorized, memorized the scripture. They've learned all the songs that are tied to the story of Jesus. What a great foundation. Absolutely. What if every little five-year-old in the world or Christians at least, learned those scriptures from Luke 2, okay, learned those scriptures, had them memorized, meaning that's inside of them now, right? Right. And they have that as a foundation going forward in Jesus Christ. Amazing. Isn't that fun? Yeah. So we're going to look a little bit at the Christ story, and we do want to talk about traditions because in the LDS religion, we have another set of scriptures that is canonized for us. And DNC, I'll have you look it up, Pamela. DNC 93. Oh, I just pulled it up. Verse 39. Exactly the one I was going to share. Okay. I want you to share Great that. Great Okay. I, I, I think it is so relevant that it, when we're talking about traditions because of this very verse that you were, it, it was that we're thinking the same. It's verse 39 and it says, and that wicked one cometh and take away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the tradition of their fathers. And that has given me a lot of pause in the last few years myself. So that's what came to mind as you were bringing up traditions. That was the first thing. It's like, you know what? Are my traditions based on truth or are they based on traditions of my fathers? Well-intended or not, I think traditions can create stumbling blocks for us when we're really seeking the pure truth. And when we have the term fathers, 
Does that mean our literal father, grandfather? Yes, it could be a familia influence, but it also could be a cultural. Exactly. Right? It could be the in the community that you live in or in the religion that you belong to. All of a sudden, there could be a tradition that you did not even know of or wasn't even around when you were a child. Right. And then today, there's this uh, collective idea that a certain tradition Um, And we're not going to get into anything other than the story of Christ, but I just want you thinking about, we have so many traditions that form our thoughts and our beliefs and, and our God, the Lord Jesus is warning us that that can lead us down a wrong path, can lead us to being deceived in this world. And so it means that you have to question everything. And who do you take your questions to? Absolutely. You take them to the Lord. That's right. You take them to the source of all truth. And when we take them to the source of all truth and we include the the truths that they may be imperfect, but they are embodied in scripture, it is really amazing how when they take it, they're taken as the collective, that they really aren't um, contradictory. They give insights and you go to the original translations. Those have given me a lot of insights that that maybe if I read one translation, it might have been a confusing idea when I take it in the whole and go back as close as I can to the original source. Man, there's insights that you can learn. And I mean, you know, I have a lot of traditions that I took on. I have a lot of cultural tradition that I didn't even grow up. I mean, I have some Asian background, but I have a lot of Asian culture in me that I didn't even realize I had until I went to China and it was so familiar. My grandmother remind all the people there reminded me of my grandma and my relatives and I couldn't believe it because I thought I'm not that Chinese. I'm totally all American, you know, but but there was such tradition, cultural tradition that still came through my, my, my familial line that I think, you know, here we are the melting pot in America, but we have inherited a lot of traditions, some good, some bad. My homeschool kids, they have a lot of less, they have a lot less educational traditions. And when they correct me in my thinking, I'm grateful because I realize they don't have the same stumbling block because they didn't go through the same experience because I homeschooled them. So, well, I, I want to get clear that I don't want you to, I don't want people that are listening to get the idea that, well, traditions are bad and we need exactly. to look at them all. They're good. I, I basically put traditions in kind of two, I really, I make it like into two different camps and I haven't, I, um, anything because because of our circumstances and our understanding of who we are on this planet, we're children of God. We've been sent down here. We have an understanding that um, we had, we lived in a pre-existence and we're down here now and we're down here to finish this final battle um, between good and evil, between Christ and Satan started way before we came to this planet, but we're down here because we made a choice to follow Christ. We, made, we chose his plan, which was to allow us the ability to be um, 
self-governing and to make our own decisions and we have agency to choose right from wrong and suffer a consequence, be that what it may. Okay, that was the whole process of it. So traditions, I feel like a good tradition is something that brings us closer to to Christ, that that leads us to Jesus, that connects us to him. Because honestly, we're in a cold and dreary world and we need to find Jesus and we need to latch on to him. Yes. And hang tight. And hang tight. Yeah. And then anything else that moves us away from Jesus, like um, just turns our back on him or or catches our eye or, and it might not seem bad. It can even be a good thing. A good thing can still lead us from Jesus because Jesus Mm -hmm. is way beyond good. Right. Jesus is beyond anything that this telestial world could even comprehend. Right. His glory, his, his um, holiness, something we can't, his light, his truth is way beyond us. We couldn't even be in his presence without us having some sort of a change come upon us. But if we start shifting away and we start looking at things that come from this world, whether it's men, whether it's um, objects, whether it's entertainment, whether it's books, whatever it is, and it turns us away from him, that can be a, that is a bad tradition. It's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block, just like you said. And so we have that warning, which uh, Pamela just read in DNC. Doctrine and Covenants 93, verse 39. And so the Lord is really, you know, other than the enticings of Satan, the only other thing that's going to lead us astray are traditions of our fathers. That can be it. If they're bad traditions. Okay. Well, and and in the scripture that follows, it says, but I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. And so I really feel like it's, it's a command, but it's a safety net for us. And it's a really... You know, as we, when you have your tight grip on something, you're not as distracted. When you know that you've got a firm hold on the right thing, the other things become less, um, they, they are not um, cumbersome to us. And so I think that's really my goal. It's not to criticize anybody else, but to help us all grasp onto that, that truth and light so that we can, it's, we become unfettered. And who is truth and light? Jesus is the living. Okay, so there we have it. Yeah. Those of us who are parents, who have raised children, and I'm not saying I was the best at, at uh, I, would, I was far from it, believe me, because I had periods of time where I wasn't even thinking about Jesus. I'm, I'm just being honest um, on how I, I live part of my life. But um, he is truth and light. And John tells us, go into John chapter 1, he is... He is the yes. source of truth and life. He is the word. He is the logos. He is. And so what he's telling you right here is if you, after he warns you, if you bring your children up in being connected to Jesus yes. Christ, who is truth and light, you're going to be okay. Yeah. Your kids will be fine. Okay. So that right there is just a mini lesson of really how simple it is for us to get through this dark and dreary world is if we latch on. And hang on tight to Jesus well, Christ. Well, and you know, even, I mean, you say you there was times in your life, I can say there have never been times in my life where I haven't wanted to follow. But I have stumbled along a lot of times. I have always wanted to be his girl. I wanted to be that girl that was like valiant for my creator. I, from a young, young age, I felt like I knew that he knew me. 
even though there were a lot of insecurities and events in my life that could have led me into going the opposite um, direction, I always knew. But I have stumbled along a lot in my life, even with the, the good desire, because I have been kept from light and truth from the traditions of my culture, my societies. From and, and it happened long before we were born. A lot of these cultures have been, you know, growing and flourishing. But but I I the scripture, another scripture that I really love is I am the vine, you are the branches. And when he prunes us, it's to keep us close to the vine. So that we can, and you know, in grapes, when you're harvesting grapes, if you will prune them early and they they start almost from the vine, you produce fruit. But but if you don't ever prune the grape vines, you will have these amazing that go hundreds of feet with hardly any grapes. And I think we, um, our Creator Jesus, our Savior, He is about the fruit. He wants us to right. produce fruit. That's good what, fruit. yeah, good mm-hmm. fruit that. And, and so I feel like it's, it's, we, it's important for us to establish strong traditions um, in truth for that very reason. Right. So I love this topic. Okay. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look a little bit at the nativity story because it's, it's Christmas. And even though there's a tradition that Christ is born at this time of year, we know he's not real. Well, um, we don't believe he's born at this time of year, but it is tied to it. So there's the intention that you have. That's that's the culture. That's the tradition. And I don't I don't run around trying to change that because it's so ingrained. But I know in my heart he's not really born here. But I have no problem in celebrating his birth at this time. I don't have a problem with that, and I I try to really um, make it. As much as I can, because it's so commercialized, Pamela. Yes. So commercialized. But, so true. but just to get my grandkids to really be thinking about <clears throat> what is the true meaning of Christmas, it is the birth of our Savior, the one who's going to redeem us yeah. from this um, from this pains of death. And so this is not to say that the nativity story is wrong. It's not to say that it should be discarded, because... I still do nativity stories with my grandkids. We reenact it. They participate in it. And it's a great way to teach um, the concept of his birth because he did come to this earth and he was born of the flesh. And this is his story. Now, there may be parts of the story that have, by tradition, shifted and changed a little bit simply because you've had different men having access to the scriptures and different interpretations from Hebrew to Vulgate, Latin, back to um, Hebrew, English. Jerome had his hands in translating. And, and, and so what happens, and Joseph Smith has a great quote. Joseph Smith was the, um, the prophet um, of the Mormon church in 18, um, it was established in 1820. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, and uh, he uh, he was actually born on a winter solstice, and there's a huge significance to that because it's a source of it's a symbolic way of showing light conquering darkness. Light is conquering the dark world. Okay, and so um, we're going to talk about the Christmas story. 
And when we when we're talking about that, I want you to know I'm I've got a source that I'm using and I recommend this to anybody. Like if this isn't interesting to you, that's fine. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But if you're interested in perhaps knowing more about what really did happen or what could have really happened with Jesus and his birth, his entry into this world, I recommend Margaret Barker as the scholar. And I'm referencing her book today, Christmas, the original story. Margaret is one of those true scholars who actually uh, can read Greek and Latin and Hebrew. And so she can go to first source material. Most scholars today don't know second languages and they have to just read books that have been written in English and they can't go to first or second source material. When I say first source material, we're talking like early first century AD. Okay. And uh, they're not able to do that. And she can. And so her and other scholars like herself have done some amazing work, especially with the, the Jewish apostasy, which most of the world doesn't even know about that occurred in 600, around 600 well, I think BC. About the Jewish apostasy issue before you do that is there was the, the record, the law, but then there was the oral and what, what, created the problem so by the time jesus came to expand the true law the word of god the commandments it had been so corrupted by what the traditions of men the mm-hmm. culture so i mean it's historically exactly we it, it's it's proven itself historically through the ages eliza r snow wrote a poem and she was a an amazing um woman and studied a lot with Joseph Smith, but she wrote a poem. I don't remember the name of the poem, but in the poem, she talks about the two greatest enemies to Jesus Christ and his gospel is time and change. So, so true. over time, things change because that's how apostasies happen. They don't happen like Satan just doesn't come in and rip the, the rug right underneath your feet at one time. So these little changes, these little tweaks. And so whenever you're seeing change and it doesn't look like it's bringing you, again, your barometer is, does this change bring me closer to Jesus? Does this bring me closer to his principles that he taught in scripture? Okay. Or principles he's taught me personally, because we all know you can get your own personal revelation and your own instruction from the Lord yourself. That's what's beautiful is we don't have to have a, a go-between to get instruction. And that's why everything you hear today that Pamela and I talk about, you take it and get your own confirmation yeah. with the Lord, as you should with anything you hear from anyone. Because yeah. anyone that's in the flesh is subject to Satan. Because yeah. that's part of the problem of living in a celestial world. We're in the flesh and we can be deceived. Okay, so let's get into the Christmas story. So we're going to talk about, since we talked about Jesus being the source of truth and light, let's talk about the light source that happened in the Christmas story. So the star is kind of a big thing in the Christmas story. The star in Bethlehem that showed everyone the sign that the the king, um, Jesus, had been born. Now, there's a big tradition, and I mean, I thought this was accurate, (laughs) when I was growing up, but that the meridian of time is associated with the birth of Christ. 
So we yes, have AD. I always was taught right. that. So Christ was born on zero. That's yep. when zero is Christ is born zero. Then we start counting, which makes the time of his ministry, you know, approximately 30 years. You know, he's 30 years of age. Okay. Well, I hate to share with you. This is, you know, um, new news, but Christ was not born on zero. Okay. And we have sources to historical sources that are documented that, prove it. that actually give you that insight if you're willing to do the, the fact finding and the researching. And so <clears throat> it says that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. Herod is the big, big historical figure in Jesus' story, and he's a real person, okay? Which his life ended in 4 BC. Now, how do we know that? Josephus, who has, he's known as one of the most uh, prominent Jewish scholars of that time. He said that Herod died after an eclipse of the moon and shortly before Passover. Okay, so that's going to put the death of Herod more into the spring because Passover is in the spring, which used to be the first part of the calendar anciently. Okay, that's where the calendar started. And that's, oh, there's many cool things associated with that, um, with, with the, uh, the start of the year in March versus January, the way it is today. But it says that on March 12th and 13th in the year 4 BC, one month before Passover that year, this is most likely the date for his death. His death meaning Herod's death. Because they know astronomically, if there was an eclipse of the moon, they have computer models that can that can recreate that that can go back in time and establish that so if if herod died in 4 bce and we know that there was a decree by herod because why he wanted he didn't want a, a success or a threat to his right he'd heard from, the wise men had told him that hey there's a king there's we're here to see the king where do we find him? And he's like, whoa, wow. When you, yeah. when you find that king, you come back and tell me. Right? So I can worship him. Uh-huh. Actually. Right. So he's threatened because Herod yeah. is crazy. I mean, um, he's, he's a way horrible person. And, uh, and so he doesn't hear from, he doesn't hear from the three wise men. He doesn't hear what's happening with this king that supposedly has been born. Born. And so that's when he puts out the decree to kill all of the male children under the age of two. Yeah. Okay. We're going to continue with this story, but stay with us because we've got more to discuss. We're getting into the traditions surrounding the birth of Jesus. And we're going to dispel some of these traditions as not being totally accurate. It's not that they're bad per se, but we're just going to give you some. <clears throat> some more insight that might make this birth a little bit more special and give him more of the dignity of son of God than we do with the typical manger birth that we have, um, the very humble birth in the, in the stable. So stay with us, Chris Kimball with Pamela Smith, and we're going to be back after the short break here on the Liberty Moms podcast. So stay with us.
Liberty Moms podcast. Chris Kimball hosts you today and Pamela Smith. Pamela Smith is my guest. She's my dear friend and I love Pamela and she, um, she and I cross paths in yeah. so many different ways. So like-minded in so many of the things that matter. That's why we have yeah. stayed so close. So we're, we're kind of diving in and it won't be a deep dive today. I'm hoping that it's just an appetizer so that many of you will be interested enough that you will go and get Margaret Barker's book, Christmas, the Original Story. She is the scholar that's done the research on this. And so we're just giving some facts about the, the tradition that we have around the meridian of time being tied to Jesus's birth. And that's just not true. Okay. So um, we just talked about Herod dying in 4 BC. And if children were going to be killed, the male children, age two, two and under, under, that means Jesus had to have been born in either 6 or 7 BC. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in her research, she's talking about, and again, this is, this is a scientific model. I mean, you can go back, there's these programs that you can get, and you can go back and look at the skies on a certain date. But it says that in 7 BC, there were extraordinary movements in the stars. Jupiter and Saturn were in a triple conjunction in the sign of Pisces, the sign of the Hebrews. A triple conjunction means that two appear so so close together, two planets, that they appear as one. And this happened three times in 7 BCE. Oh, I'm sorry. I only say BC. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Before Christ. A triple conjunction is an extremely rare event involving a particularly intricate set of movements of two planets. So think about it. Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, of these worlds, yes. he's got an amazing planetary alignment that's going to show up when he enters our world. That sounds pretty cool. So it's more than just there's a bright star in the heavens. There's this very rare planetary alignment. So and it was a symbol. I mean, it was, it was a sign of his coming. And because the wise men saw it, you know, they had to have been watching. Yeah, it had to have been at that time. It right. would have happened another time. Right. And so it says the three conjunctions are usually spread over seven months. And in 7 BC, the conjunctions occurred May 29th and on October, October 3rd during the autumn festivals where there was a full moon and the conjunction appeared slightly east of south when seen from Jerusalem. This is over Bethlehem. And the other one was on December 4th. Okay, so that's giving you a time frame that there actually was a sign in the heavens that was appearing during the year of 7 BCE. So if you were to kind of think to yourself, what year do you think the, the creator God, the son of the most high God, would make his entry? Because from the beginning, he'd made those, right. all those things. He designed all these planets yeah. to have that sort of pattern yeah. take place when he was coming. So anyway, that go, is going to give us the date of 7 BCE, of 7 BC. So by time they fix the meridian of time, he's already age seven. Okay, so we, we're, we're kind of dissolving that part of it, okay, and, and just not using that anymore as the reference for the date of Christ. He's more... 7 BC is his birthday. The other thing that we want to talk about is 
some of the circumstances of his birth. It's, it's cute how we have him in a manger with uh, hay. hay and and these animals. But the animals weren't even brought into the story until about three or the third or fourth century AD. They were never part of the original original Christmas story. They were added later. So it's just a tradition that got plugged in 400 years later. So see, traditions don't always come from the same time source. They can be added whenever at different times, okay? And that's what we have to be aware of today is you can pick up new traditions that might be, wait, we used to not think this way or, or do this. I'm trying to think of one in particular. but um, So we have the word manger. And in, in the Greek, many of the Greek words, as in the Hebrew, there's different levels or different meanings to a word, okay? And so we're relying on translators who take a certain word from the Greek and then they use a certain word to translate it into English or whatever language. They use the word manger, and manger is a stone uh, it's a stone trough where the animals feed their feed from. Okay. And you, there are some that you can see in Israel. When you go to Megiddo, there is, there's mangers, there's troughs that are right there that show you what a manger animal, animal manger feeding trough would have looked like. And they're just cut out stone. Okay. Another word that can be used for manger, manger is altar. Now, I wonder if you have the Son of the Most High God coming to this earth to start his reign and his, his uh, ministry, is he going to be born in a manger where animals feed, or is he going to be born on an altar in a temple? I tend to believe, and what resonates with me, is he's going to be coming on an altar. Okay, and so it's important to realize that if you even want to do a quick look at this traditional story that we have, if you get a, a Greek lexicon where you can just, you know, look at the words and there's apps that can help you do it from your phone. I have a book. I don't have it with me. I'm not in my home office, but I have a Greek um, translating book that I use and it will give you these other meanings for some of these key words. And so think about it, resonate on it, but do you think Christ, our King, is going to be born in a manger where the animals eat, or is he going to be born on an altar in a temple? And let's talk about temples for a minute, because here today, 2022, we have an idea that temples are these beautiful buildings of light. And they're white, and I've been in temples, and they're ornate, and they're over the they're top, best stuff. beautiful. Expensive. Yes, yeah. the best of the best, the most expensive marble, the the um, the different areas where the temple is built. They'll pull in some of the cultural um, significance from that area, and they'll try and incorporate it incorporate into it into the mm-hmm. temple, and so it makes it their temple yeah. where they. They feel really connected to that temple. And so, um, but in ancient times, uh, we, if some of you that live in Utah, there is an actual tabernacle that rotated throughout the 
northern part of Utah during the summer. Mm -hmm. I took my grandkids and it was great because my grandkids had a visual of what uh, an altar looks like. They had a visual of the menorah. They had a visual of the of the Holy of Holies and the outer court and the lava where they washed their hand, their feet. And so it was really great when they were in Exodus to go see what they were reading about. Yep. Okay. So that temple was very functional, but it didn't have the best of the best. It didn't have, it wasn't no. laid in marble. It was a temporary, it was a, a portable temple. Okay. But there were it other, have some gold. It, you know, there were certain places that it, cause it was the best, but it was definitely portable and outside. And they did know. follow certain rules of clothing with yeah. linen and certain fabrics that were used. But some temples were in caves. Yeah. Okay. That can be a temple space because it's not so much the building, it's the ground. And like I'm a part of, Owner of Legacy Tours and Travel, and we take people. Pamela has been with me. Yes, we take people to many different parts of the world, and it's to show you sacred sites. But we teach you it's not so much what you're seeing at the site; it's what you feel at the site. Because these sacred sites all over the world are sitting on a nexus point that is energized with electrical energy from a ley line, and these nexus points is what allows heaven and earth to connect, okay? And anciently, um, and even up until uh, the Salt Lake Temple itself is sitting on a ley line. Brigham Young had enough of that knowledge, but Joseph Smith, all the early temples were always sitting on a ley line, and he actually had them adjusted to the 23 and a half degree tilt that we have from the earth. So they were aligned to true north and not the false north that we're lined up to right now. But um, so what we're what we're talking about is it's the site is what's the ground itself is what makes that temple um, energetic or connect with the heavens is because it has to have that that electronic elect not electronic but that electrical energy from the ley line that allows it to connect with the heavens mm-hmm. and so sometimes that could be in a cave yeah. okay doesn't have to be in a beautiful, gorgeous building. Well, and I, I've even seen now stables <clears throat> being depicted in caves on videos. It's changed even in my lifetime. It's, you've started to see to, a shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a shifting of that. Um, still laying in the manger with cows and, you know, sheep. But still, that is an interesting. It, it would make sense, even if it wasn't recognized by all men, all earthly men, that the Lord, it was a sacred event sacred event and he is the most high priest the great high priest he's going to come down and his swaddling clothes are going to be significant because they would represent the priestly garments that the high priest wore did, did you talk i had to check my so, did you check on or did you talk about shepherds not yet oh okay. not yeah so i think that's a good topic we yeah talk about too so so we have the idea that he's born not in a manger with animals but he's born in a temple with an altar. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that to me really right rings true with the fact that this is our Lord and King, the most high God. And so we also have Pamela just brought up the, the tradition of shepherds watching over their flocks by night. Well, their flocks is their congregation. Okay. These were the shepherds were actually leaders of people. 
Okay. And, and he is our leader. He is our shepherd, right? The, the good shepherd. He the good, good shepherd. shepherd. Yeah. So he has that imagery. And we are considered well. his sheep. And we are considered his sheep. And if you get, I don't know exactly where this is in, in I believe it's in Matthew, but he tells us his sheep are few, mm-hmm. which means most people don't follow him. And the sheep, it's a good really point to bring up, is, it, is the sheep always follow the shepherd's voice. That's how they know the shepherd. They and know literally, him. if you have, um, when, when you congregate a lot of, like at watering holes, if the sheep all come to the same watering holes, the way they separate them out isn't by branding, but the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. And so when they call them, they go and follow They and they don't intermingle. And that is truly symbolic. I mean, when you think about it, there's a lot of voices that are shepherding people throughout the world in the name of churches, denominations, many different denominations. And, and they hear the voice of that shepherd but but jesus is always in my reading of the scriptures as of late is the one shepherd he wants us to hear his voice my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and so it's made me think you know what i am grateful to be a part of a congregation locally where i go but but i but we're all sheep there and we're trying to hear his voice. His voice. And that is, to me, a significant differentiation from the tradition that I was taught in throughout my childhood growing up. And I love that differentiation because it's so secure. Because no matter where I go, my shepherd wants, he, he's willing to let me hear his voice if I'm willing to follow it. And that's beautiful. And I'm glad you brought this up, Pamela, because, again, I want to be one of the few. Me too. I mean, when I read that, and it's like he knows, my sheep know me, and they are few. And I was like, how sad is that? I mean, he has, I mean, he gave up his life for us, and yet we are so distracted or or um, deceived, distracted, no, deceived. His life. He paid every, he paid to the um, eternity, everything wrong we ever did. And it, you know, that is why he's a jealous God that wants our fidelity. It's not because he's, he's, um, has the human side of jealousy that we, we see, you know, selfishness. It is, he wants to give us everything he has. And if he can, if we can show that we are loyal to him, he, he has promised us all that he has to share. And that is to me a beautiful gift of being, you know, our fidelity that he will actually become our bridegroom. And, and so, you know, the significance of his birth and then the life he lived, I mean, it all is combined into that great whole of individuality for, you know, that he is reaching out to us as individuals, the few if there were many, he would take the many. He would take the many, but this is what's so sad, Pamela. There's only a few. Yes. There's only a few right now that are seeking him, that are following literally, literally seeking him, seeking him yes. and turning away from man, mm-hmm. turning away from the messages of this world That's and right. 
anyway, okay, so we, we, we're going to steer back here to the Christmas story because there's some cool things. And today we're not going to be able to get through all of it, but I'm, I'm hoping that we can point out enough things that it will pique your interest to realize that, wow, I'd like to kind of learn yeah. a different way it's of thinking about this. It yes. has made me hungry for more. And so the, the, the truth. If any of you have been to Israel and to Jerusalem or Bethlehem specifically, you have the Church of the Nativity, which is the traditional site of where Christ was married. I mean, sorry, where he was born. And I just, I really do not even like to go there because it's oh. such a mess and it's so chaotic yeah. and there's just tons of people waiting in line. But everyone wants to go there because yeah. it's the traditional site of where he's born. And you go down, we call it the toilet bowl because yeah. it's this oh, round it's and everybody's funneling into sweaty, this. Sticky. And it's, yes. And it's chaotic and it's not peaceful. And it's, and so you go down there and you are kind of in a, it's caved area and you go down and you look at this, you walk out and you're going, wow, that was it. That's where he was born. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. You Did know, you feel that, but you don't feel anything. Okay. Yeah. Well, Margaret Barker herself has been doing some other research and were you with us when we yes. went to Cathisma? Is that the church of the side of the world? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, good. I just love yes. that. Okay. So the, this is a, a recent site and legacy tours. We learned about this through Margaret Barker and we've been very fortunate to um, have her connect with us on some of our tours through um, one of our uh, tour guides, Dr. John Hall, who's great friends with her. But Margaret Barker, when she found out that we were going to Israel a few years ago, she said, you must go to this site. It's a it's an archaeological site that they had not been working on. They know it's there. They started digging a road in the late 90s. And in Israel, anytime they come across an archaeological site, boom, it stops any sort of construction because they don't want to disturb yeah. or ruin these ancient places. And so it, they didn't have the money they to excavate the it. around it. Yeah, so they built the road around it. So it's kind of like hidden in plain sight. Yes. Like the world is just going on around it, yes. and it's hard to even find it. You you have to first either find the guide or a driver. Like when Pamela yeah. was with us in Israel, it was the bus driver who happened to be an Arab. He's the one that knew of this site. Because you can't see it. There's nothing built on it. Yeah, it's it just the freeway going through arid country, and then we stopped and got out and... And yeah. poured water bottles on magnificent tiles. Tiles. Yeah. So it matches the description of the birth of Jesus that you'll find in a book called the Proto-Evangelium of James, which means the Infancy Gospel of James. James is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, so the tradition that Mary was married to Joseph is a tradition. And it's not an accurate tradition, but it it has taken on this espoused wife, has taken on this idea that Joseph actually married Mary. And he was her guardian. He's much, much older than her. Mary was working in the temple and working on weaving. She was a weaver and weaving the veil. And she could no longer be in the temple. This is all coming from the Proto-Evangelium of James or the Infancy Gospel of James, and you can Google that, and you can access it free to read. Margaret Barker incorporates it in her book, The Original Christmas Story, or you can just order the Proto-Evangelium of James and just have a copy of the book yourself. So it's very easily 
accessible. But it's one of the apocrypha that we don't have in our canon. And we just have to realize many scriptures, many books were removed by um, people who wanted to change the narrative of history or the narrative of doctrine. And so um, one of that happened in uh, 600 BC with the um, apostasy of the Jews. Another one happened in Nicaea with the Nicene Creed. Books were removed. All that is giving you some context. So the Proto-Evangelium of James is, is a book written by James. He is the older brother. Joseph was married. His wife had died, I'm assuming, um, at this point. And he is a high priest in the temple. And they draw lots. And Joseph is assigned to be the caretaker of Mary because she is going to start menstruating and it is unholy to have blood in the temple. Yeah. Okay. So she has to be removed from the temple at that point in time. And so it's an amazing story, but we have to realize that sometimes there's these traditions that we've gotten locked into. And so we kind of think that Joseph is the literal father of Jesus Christ and, and he's not, but he is a father in a caretaking responsibility. And so in that particular story, uh, Joseph is sent off to go find a midwife. And Cathisma, as we get back to that part of it, is a place between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And the name in Greek means to squat. So the tradition is that is really most likely the place that G Mary had Jesus, that Jesus was born. And there's a rock that is there on the ground that yeah. would have been where the altar would have been. Yeah. And the description that they give of the birth of the palm trees and the all the um, olive trees and the water source, it yeah. all kind of fits what James is talking about even today. There is a water source that's not very far from there. And so to me, that seems more of a site that would have been the birthplace of our Lord and King because no one is going there. People are driving by it. They are ignoring it. They don't even realize it's there. It's hidden in plain sight. And it's that sacred ground that is still being protected today. And at one point, there was a chapel built on top of it, a Byzantine yes. church. And what's interesting, it was an octagonal church which is very significant in symbolism. Um, we have that octagonal um, in, in our Melchizedek, sign of the Melchizedek priesthood mm -hmm. is octagonal. And so that church itself had that particular design. And, and then over time, uh, maybe earthquake, whatever, it's not there. But as Pamela mentioned, the tiles are still there. Yeah. And so we took our water bottles out. And I mean, All these you're right tiles on this. Come ancient site is so exciting beautiful to be able to be there and so that to me was most likely and honestly much more spiritual much more sacred feeling than the busy church of the nativity yeah. where everybody was there Horribly well pamela busy. we have come to the end of our show and we're just totally scratching the yes, surface very so scratching. i if this is of interest to you i hope that you'll um take more time to to reflect and study more about this birth story of Jesus, that there's probably more to it. And uh, I hope that you enjoyed this discussion, Jane. Thank you for joining I me, Pamela. Thank you. I mean, I know you love Jesus.
Jesus and um, are always eager to talk about him. And so that's why I invited Pamela to be part of this conversation today. And so I hope all of you out there will take this time to really focus on the true meaning of Christmas and really set your intentions on following our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today on the Liberty Moms podcast.